And I have a very wonderful quote from the French writer André Gide. He said, I modify facts to such a degree that they resemble truth more than reality. And that's what I'm doing. Welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, raw footage of a volcanic eruption becomes a memorial to two filmmakers in director Werner Herzog's documentary, The Fire Within, a requiem for Katya and Maurice Kraft. Screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, the film crafts a fitting memorial to volcanologists and filmmakers Maurice and Katya Kraft who were killed while filming the eruption of Japan's Mount Unzen on June 3, 1991. In addition to The Fire Within, Herzog's directorial filmography includes the feature films Aguirre, The Wrath of God, Nosferatu the Vampire, Fitzcarraldo, and Rescue Dawn. The documentaries Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds, Meeting Gorbachev, and Into the Abyss and episodes of the television documentary series On Death Row. He won the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary for his 2005 feature, Grizzly Man. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Herzog spoke with director Jeremy Kagan about filming The Fire Within, a requiem for Katya and Maurice Kraft. Listen on for their conversation. Um, before we explore your filmmaking process, I have a larger question to ask. Albert Einstein once said, there's only one question. And the question is, is the universe friendly? And I want to get your answer. You've made over 60 films. You've made movies that have oftentimes been humans confronting both themselves and nature. But I'm as you step back and a- answer Albert's question, what would you say and why would you say it? Well, uh, you don't need to be a specialist or a scientist and you don't need to do any space travel to know it is not friendly. <laughs> it's not friendly out there and I do believe the um, quest to populate uh, other planets with uh, a million human beings is idiotic, counterproductive, and it takes away our real problem that we have created for our planet. We should rather make our, keep our planet inhabitable instead of uh, trying to make somewhat, some something else out there habitable. And uh, when you speak, uh, for example, with Elon Musk, who tells us there should be uh, one million human beings on Mars, it, it is not right. And, it's, and by the way, you don't need to be a scientist either. It, it is not going to happen. It's a pipe dream. It's too, too hostile. There's uh, radiation out there that will fry you as if you would step 
in your microwave oven. The entire surface is extremely toxic. The temperatures are unbearable. There's no water. And uh, Musk, Elon Musk spoke about, yeah, why shouldn't we explode atomic bombs at the polar regions of Mars? Good luck with that. Let's, let's, to, let's leave him over there yeah. and bring us to your, to your yeah. movie. We okay. don't need him. But the our, observation... Our planet isn't that inhabitable either. Some, something is boiling under us. It's not very pleasant. So we are lucky that we have some uh, solid ground under us. At least at this moment. Yeah. The question... It's been said that all art aspires to the nature of music. And you did say this was a musical. In many ways, it of course is. What was the process you went through to choose the incredible variety mm-hmm. of music that some of it's indigenous to certain cultures, others obviously Wagner's there, there's also, you know. So what was the evolution for you of choosing these, this music and letting it play such a major role? Well, it was an easy decision. It appeared to me uh, this was going to be a musical. It should be a requiem for two persons. But of course, I would hope uh, that other people would see the film as, as well and marvel at the incredible achievement of the footage that they have left for us. Otherwise, the the decisions came very, very quickly. Uh, for example, with these long, long flows of rivers in um, Hawaii, I immediately knew there should be something like, um, I believe it is uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, High Mass in B minor, um, the Kyrie. And, and I said to the editor, let's place it there, and it fit. And he said, oh, the Fourier Requiem at the very beginning, because after some 30 seconds or so, the word Requiem is sung. So and we'll place a title, uh, The Fire Within, and when the word Requiem appears, you hear the the voices sing Requiem. So there, there was a correspondence, a very precise correspondence sometimes, but otherwise, there was no process. It went fast, and it was so. I was so dead certain what uh, I selected was right, including, for example, Sardinian singers and a Senegalese singer with them, with whom I had worked before, or, for example, um, a Mexican singer whom I really like a lot, uh, Ana Gabriel. These love songs, these heartbreaking songs, and I knew that had to be for a, a specific part of the film. And sometimes the footage dictated the length of the music. Sometimes the music, the song of Anna Gabriel, dictated the length of the images. And and it's it goes in in certain musical chapters. And speaking of the vo- your voice, the voiceover, it has both present tense, future tense, and past tense. Oh, I didn't what was notice. The, what's the evo- how how did you begin to speak in this piece? Because it, it clearly, you know, they're all as I said, they're all kinds of changes, and obviously, you you edited it in a way to tell us this was going to be a tragedy but 
there's all kinds of observances and changes and and different perspectives. How do you go about and how did you go about doing the voiceover? Well, I, I do voiceovers while I'm editing. And I immediately I, I know I have to uh, explain a few things. Let's say Nevado de Ruiz, uh, where this uh, lahar, the, the mud flow, came down 100 feet deep. Uh, rushing down and widening to one kilometer. It had to be explained and, and I would immediately write it down on little yellow pads. And right behind me in the editing room, we had a broom closet or so, which we converted into a sound booth. And I had a very professional microphone. I scribbled it down, stepped back, recorded it, and we put it in. And it turns out it's three seconds too long. Now, can we extend the image? Is there three seconds more? Because it would overlap into the next episode. And when there was no footage enough to extend it a little bit, I would just shorten the text, cut out a few phrases, and it went immediately. Uh, and it didn't take me more than, let's say, um, all in all, uh, a few days for the recording. Editing went very fast. It was evident once we had seen the footage, a good amount of footage, some 30 hours. What surprised you the most about some of this footage, which you had never seen? What what, what images, I mean, there are yeah. so many, but what images for you went, I've never seen this? There's uh, stunningly original material in there. For example, when I mention it, the monkey that is looking for lice in the hair. Nobody sees it, nobody describes it, nobody films it, they did. And of course, uh, uh, the, the most intense of all is, is this incredible caliber of their footage. And you know, every single shot that they did at the volcanoes, they were too close. They were too in positions too risky. And these images are so grandiose and so cinematic that I'm uh, totally in awe because it's the second time I see it, or the third time I see it on a screen and it overwhelms me when I see it. And I say it easily because I did not shoot it. It's, it's a crafts and they have given us footage that somehow defines cinema it's a celebration of cinema. It's also a celebration of daring. And if they were alive and sitting here, what would you want to ask them? Uh, well, that's a difficult question. I wouldn't know. I, uh, I would ask them to stay a little bit further back <laughs> and take a little bit a longer lens. Uh, because... And, and and you do not do any significant science by stepping to an eruption uh, only 10 feet away from where it shoots up in the sky. You don't do science like that. So, uh, but it was, for them, it was something different. The images, something that is unprecedented, something we have never seen before in, in our lives. And we probably will not see it easily again. There will not be people like them again easily. As you think about them and the courage that they had and saying, I would like to have been their companion, obviously you would have told them to step back, you just told us, but 
as examining the courage of these two individuals, you've made many movies about people who take risks. Was there a discovery for you that you didn't know as you explored their work and them? Not really, because uh, I did a film on La Soufrière volcano in the Caribbean in the mid-70s. And it was more, not so much the volcano, it was a complete evacuation of the southern island of Guadeloupe. And one single poor black farmer had refused to be evacuated. And he interested me. He must have had a different attitude towards death. And I rushed to the island trying to find him, and I found him. And it was it was unpleasant because everybody had fled. Scientists had fled. Snakes had fled into the ocean and drowned. The birds had fled. And a seismic crisis occurred the entire night and up to 5.1 on the Richter scale. It really jolts you and shakes you. So it it didn't look good. Uh, so I had to take the decision, do I go in and film there? And I asked one of the two cinematographers, give me your camera, I'm going to do it alone. No, he wouldn't allow it, he would come. Uh, the other one, a wonderful uh, cinematographer from the United States, Ed Luckman, who is one of the great American cinematographers. Yes, you should applaud him. Thank you, I will tell him. Uh, <laughs> Um, he had some hesitation and uh, after some uh, clearing his glasses that were forked over from the jungle climate, we had bypassed the roadblocks of the army and and we were positioning a camera in the distance of 20 kilometers uh, so that it would click every eight seconds one image. So. Uh, we would at least have that if, and he asks me, Werner, what's going to happen if, when we are up there and the volcano explodes, if it blasts, I said, Edward, we shall be airborne. <laughs> so what else can you say? And he said, I'm coming with you. So, and uh, the volcano actually did not explode. And then later, uh, just only four years ago, three, four years ago, I made a film Into the Inferno together with a volcanologist. Is also very fine footage in there. In one moment, you see the two of us with these uh, uh, silver suits, heat-rejecting uh, suits, because Clive Oppenheimer, the specialist, said we can descend into the lower level and go right to to the flying lava because it's contained. And I thought, oh yeah, he's an expert. And we put me down these uh, things, these strange suits, and we were right at the edge. And all of a sudden, uh, there, there was massive, massive uh, expulsions uh, of material and, and some of it flew in the air, size of a truck and, and red hot liquid and it comes down next to you, you better scram, now which most, we did. Most, I'm glad you did. So I, I, knew, I knew what it meant to be too close. Most of us think of the fire and also the black lava moving, but there's so many other images, this, this, uh, this crypto... Uh, the pyrocrypto, it's just, uh, for many of us, it, yeah. 
We didn't know it exists. The pyroclastic flows, yes. Uh, yes, they are so awesome, but they need to be explained because uh, we have to know, and that's why the commentary is necessary. There's temperatures inside of over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. They can come at you with... 600 miles an hour speed and come over you and they are silent. So I had to say that. Now uh, let's see what what uh, what we see. There seems to be a, this is a technical question, but in terms of the editing, every now and then there feels like, oh, you've jumped or they have maybe jumped in terms of, in terms of, of cuts. Were there times where that was a choice, just like you were saying yeah. about, about the music and we, the editing? Yes, we used the shots, some of the shots to the very end, even until you see the, the, the red color coming in from the sides. Uh, in, in the magazine and sometimes you see a pan like in Mexico at El Chichon and the, the town down there that looks like a devastated and God forsaken place and the camera is panning and it jumps a little bit and, and then stabilizes. I left it, I did not want to polish it and digitally somehow remaster it and soften it down. It should stay as raw as we found it. In some of the images and many of the key things we left until there was no frame left. In examining the, the um, fate itself and confronting death itself, what have you been learning? I have not learned anything. I, had, I knew it before and uh, I don't need to make a film with footage that others shot to learn much. I only learn one thing, awe and respect and, uh, and complete, complete uh, somehow enthusiasm for uh, what they gave us. We have, we have a treasure. We have a treasure that they gave us that is unprecedented in the history of cinema. And how did you discover their archive? When did you know about it? Well, I discovered the archive when I did Into the Inferno a few years ago. And I went to the archive, which at that time was in eastern France, in the provincial capital city of Nancy. And I saw what, what was there. I mean, I looked into some boxes and I uh, was very... Uh, well received by the archivists but then all of a sudden the archive was sold in its totality to a, a Swiss a media company Titan Films and Titan Films and it's a strange story because um, I had started two and a half years ago and, and the finances didn't come through. So I was uh, doing other things and I made two films last year and two books. So I just plowed on and all of a sudden there was some money and the other film, the other film who bought some of the footage uh, from the North Sea archive before it was sold is apparently now in the film uh, Fire of Love the other film. And we had to acquire it from the media conglomerate Titan Films in, in Geneva. And they were very, very helpful because there was not enough money and, they, and there's a very, very 
good leadership there. They said to us, you know what, we give you all the material for free. It's worth, let's say, per minute or so, all in all, let's say $200,000. We give it to you for free, but this is our part in the production. So if the film ever makes money, we will have a share of the revenues. And it's a very fair deal. And because of all these uh, delays with the finances, my film was finished, uh, I think, uh, eight days after Fire of Love was shown in Sundance, even though I had started two and a half years earlier. Having worked so brilliantly as a dramatic filmmaker and also so incredibly powerful as a documentarian, talk about the process and differences for you, if any. Uh, I think we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't waste too much time to define it. It's all movies for me, but I have to say uh, I do things in documentaries that are normally elements you would uh, use in feature films, casting. I really cast well. I um, partially script documentaries or I would repeat scenes uh, in the film Little Dieter Needs to Fly, the protagonist who went through an incredible ordeal as a POW in Laos and of the Viet Cong, the only one who escaped actually. And he tells a key moment um, when before he was rescued, uh, which is absolutely incredible and gruesome. And I filmed with him, with Dieter Dengler, and um, I wouldn't stop him. And his story was 42 minutes long. And I said to him, Dieter, our film is only 60 minutes long and this is only an episode. We have to bring it down. So what do we do? What do we do? So, And he said, I, I know. And he told it again and uh, again and again and again. And then he gave me details that were totally unimportant. And I said, but you forgot the key detail. And so let's do it once more. We filmed it five or six times. You normally do not do that um, in a documentary, but it gives a deeper truth. It, it is something that is condensed in, inside of him, condensed for the film. Uh, and has the truth of poetry all of a sudden, not 42 minutes of unimportant little details. And so also truthful, but but a condensed form of truth. And I'm trying to uh, dig deeper into a deeper stratum of truth. What truth is, nobody knows. But uh, an ap approximation, I think you will understand that. For that, uh, I'm not so much fact-oriented in my documentaries. And that's a fundamental mistake of cinema verite. Cinema verite is the, the style of the 1960s. It was the answer of the 1960s. It was the answer to the Vietnam War. But we have to move on and we have to, to look deeper into move away from facts. And I have a very wonderful uh, quote from the French writer André Gide. He said, I modify facts to such a degree that they resemble truth more than reality. And that's what I'm doing. 
uh, Andy Timoner, who's uh, head of our documentary committee, her new movie, which I highly recommend to all of you, um, uh, uh, Last Flight Home, uh, is now being screened all around the yeah. world, and so she couldn't be here. But she had a question for you. Okay. And it related to the film, of course, and it had to do with what's the fire inside you? I, I don't know. I don't like to look inside of myself. <laughs> So there's no there's no burning passion here, but there is because you love film and you love imagery. Apparently, there is something like that, but I I would be cautious to name it. Uh, but uh, uh, let's face it, I I I'm a storyteller, and I do have a vision that I have followed since I'm 19 years old when I made my first film, and it has carried me along. Uh, how I don't know, uh, but it it has, and, and, we're, I, and we're quite glad it has. There's a there's a there's a wonderful phrase. It, if you want to learn something, go on a journey, and clearly you've taken us on many many journeys. Uh, yes, uh, and it's uh, it's good that you pointed out because recently. Uh, the public has more and more understood that I'm also a writer. And since 45 years, I'm on the record in public discourse on TV saying that my poetry and my prose books will probably live longer than my films. I may be wrong because in such things I've many times been wrong. But uh, last year I... I uh, published two books. One is out in English translation. The other one is in the making. And, and now all of a sudden my writing is out there. And, um, and when you say, yeah, go on a voyage, and I have a very simple way to explain it because it's not a contradiction. I, I keep saying my films are my voyage and writing is home. Wow. Let me ask one more question, which has to do with, as with any film, oftentimes there's parts that we wanted to keep, but we had to let it go on the floor or there's no floor in our editing digital rooms anymore. What was left out of here that you remember and struggled no, to no. either keep or, or, or leave. No, everything I really wanted to have in the film is in the film. And there's 200 more hours of footage. So uh, go out, your filmmakers, go out, uh, check into the footage. There are only two films by now made from this footage. We can have an, another 15, 20 more. And, and you see, you see, you... Whoever makes, you, you have one guarantee, whoever makes a film with this footage cannot go wrong and cannot make a mediocre film. It is impossible. Their journey that you point out from being documentaries doc, uh, of this to being reflective about themselves to then actually becoming, as you call them, artists. As you look at that journey, what do you discover in that process? It's mysterious because the film 
the film actually shows it. I went into everything that fascinated me to show their trajectory from primitive uh, eight millimeter tourist films where a young lady uh, in high heels in bikini shows up on the volcano. So all this kind of stuff. And, and then it's mysterious because as, as if overnight, it was not completely overnight, but as if overnight, the events, I think in 1973, uh, in Iceland or Southern Icelandic islands of Heimei, and and you look at the footage and, and you're totally stunned. You're stunned. A great filmmaker has emerged. Not is emerging, just has emerged. As if waking up one morning and, and he's, uh, he's big. Do you feel the issue of... It, Stravinsky once said the music he wrote, nobody had ever heard before. It was totally original. And then he said... I was merely the vehicle through which it passed. And I'm interested in your creative process, obviously their creative process as well. How much, oh, I'm intending this, and how much it's intending me to do this? That's a beautiful question. Give me uh, half a year time and I will come back with some sort of an answer. But... Um, Something resonates in me right away. The the, the footage uh, comes over me and it just carries me along. And it's strange because I had a similar feeling like uh, Maurice Kraft uh, with his gigantic rivers of fast-moving lava when I saw this. I saw it live and I saw it in his footage. I had the feeling, jump on a surfboard and surf down. And he had... He had a serious sort of of quest to be carried by what he saw there and would build some sort of a space capsule with a heat-resistant bottom and titanium cupola. Of course, Katya was more prudent and dissuaded him. He would have inevitably would have perished with, within, within less than a minute he would have been dead because it would topple over and get stuck or being pulled into an underground tunnel of, of flowing lava. It's completely idiotic. And, and, yet, and yet he who has made all this footage dreamt of this and I dreamt of surfing down on a surfboard. So, and, and it answers a little bit, yes, you feel like what you see is so overwhelming that you want to be carried away. Are you okay? Uh, sure, with, yes, we let's should. Let's have not. at least three or four questions from you all. If you'd like, please raise your hands. Or if you would like, raise yes. them high so I can... To the left, yeah. Oh, go, please. Yes, he's asking what he documentaries are hard to make and what does Werner tell a new young filmmaker uh, about the process? No, they are not that hard to make. Uh, today it's much easier. When I started I had to do 35 millimeter celluloid and it was expensive, clumsy, slow and, and so on. Today you can make a, a film, a documentary with your cell phone, cinema quality and you can edit uh, the film on your own laptop. There are programs and it can go very, very fast. 
uh, it depends on the subject. It depends on what what you are doing. And um, I would say uh, uh, I hear so many times from young filmmakers who are into what I call the culture of complaint. Ah, the finances are not there and the film industry doesn't understand my vision and and, and on and on. And uh, what you have to do is roll up your sleeve, earn some money. You can make a, a long one and a half hour documentary cinema quality for under $10,000. If you are able-bodied and smart enough, you will earn it. Uh, and you can make a feature film for under $50,000. So so be courageous. And when I was 15, 16, nobody at that time took me seriously. I was still a schoolboy. My puberty was late. I was thrown out everywhere. And when I was finally terminally thrown out from a company that really wanted to make the film, but they hadn't seen me yet. When they saw me, it was over in 10 seconds. And I got angry and I started to work the night shift as a welder in a steel factory. During day, I was in high school. During night, I worked as a welder for two and a half years. And I made enough money to finance immediately my first uh, featurettes and and then part of uh, my first uh, feature film, long feature film. So follow your vision, be intrepid, uh, just do it, go out. One advice I would like to give you as well is, I see it so often since we are in the digital world, recording with a camera doesn't cost any money anymore. And I see young filmmakers recording hours after hours after hours, and they hope something is going to happen and it doesn't. You better know what you are doing. And recently, I, I remember last time I was at Sundance, a young filmmaker came and he said, oh, I've shot 850 hours of footage and I'm editing since two and a half years and my heart sank. <laughs> you see, this he, he did not know what he was doing. And uh, I said to him, please, 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 shoot what you really want for the screen. We are filmmakers. We are not garbage collectors. Nicely put. Let's have a couple more. I see right there, your hands is up. I, I think you all heard that. It's comparing Grizzly Man with this experience. Yeah, they, they are some sort of companion pieces. It's like brother and sister. I feel there's a kinship. Maybe the films do not talk to each other, but they dance with each other. Uh, the film that has eluded me that I always wanted to make, yes. There are one or two projects uh, simply too expensive, but I know the the rules of the industry and of uh, if I want to make a film that costs uh, over $100 million, I can make it, but only if my last film has had box office returns of over $400 million dollars. Uh, domestic, then the uh, business cards will come uh, sliding in under my uh, under my door, and I, I will be able to make it. So I do not lose any sleepless nights over it. And I had a project about uh, something like eighteen years ago, and I I knew uh, I would spend the next eighteen years and still not have the money together. And in these eighty eighteen years 
I made 28 films. <laughs> so that project did get made 28 times. <laughs> One more question, sir. Yes. That's that's that question or uh, is future future project future project if there <coughs> some you can share. Uh, yes, there are, um, but it's all fe narrative feature films. Uh, one, uh, actually, I describe unfinished business in my memoirs that have the title "Every Man for Himself in God Against All." Released in in German language, uh, and it uh, English translation is almost finished. It will come out next year. Uh, yes, I describe some projects. One is about uh, two uh, twin, uh, two young women, twin identical twins. Uh, one is about somebody um, who who disappears. There is another feature film. I, I shouldn't go into it because I, I don't know in which sequence they can be done. They will be done the moment there's some finances. If I have the money for it uh, uh, today, I start filming tomorrow. Well, and in one project uh, about child soldiers in Sierra Leone, but a narrative film, a staged narrative film in Sierra Leone is... Uh, it's a, it's a little bit shaky right now with uh, some riots that occurred uh, in the capital city about eight weeks ago or nine weeks ago. So uh, I have to be prudent. Uh, I do not want to bring a crew with me and uh, when and, and having actors from there uh, when um, uh, there is a certain danger out there. So there's a responsibility. Well, I hope you get to make all of these films prove that age has nothing to do with art and talent and that we get to see more and more of your work because you are an amazing filmmaker and a gift to all of us. Thanks, Werner. Uh, very kind. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.